0: Well, the pressure is on because if uh, this thing tanks, then Nate and I are going to both lose a lot of credibility. (laughs) But I'm actually not worried about that, Um, not only because I have uh, a lot of confidence in my friend Nate and Trevor and their families, but uh, mostly because this church belongs to God. All God's churches belong to him, and it's, uh, it's your work as a community to enjoy him and engage his mission and be prayerful, and then let God do what he will with you and with this congregation. I do want to say, though, that the work that you're doing here and the reports that we get from this church, you probably don't understand that um, there's churches in Oregon, in the Portland area, and around it, in Seattle, that hear about what God's doing in your midst. And you guys are an encouragement. Um, You maybe don't feel like leaders, but you're leaders Um, because what you're letting God do in your midst is helping other churches think and pray about what God should be doing in their midst. So um, I'm very, very thankful to be here, and I hope that you're blessed with God's Word. And uh, we love the Mosses and the Walkers as as much as they love us, so it's good to have time with them. Well, you'll find the scripture for today printed on page 8 in the bulletin. I'm going to pray. I'll read out of the bulletin. I'm not sure I have the same version, so I'll read out of the Texts that you've been handed, and um, then we'll talk about what I want to call expectations blindness. But first, let's pray. Father, I ask you, please, in your mercy, to um, bless the reading and the hearing, the preaching, and mostly the doing and believing of your holy word, we ask through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. There's a physician named Oliver Sacks who went to um, an island called Pingalup, I think is how you pronounce it, because he wanted to explore um, a unique genetic phenomena on this island that doesn't have a lot of people enter into it. It's uh, it's uh, very, very isolated and its population therefore is restricted within its own bounds. And the result of that is something along the lines, I think, of 30 or 40 percent of the um, people on the island are colorblind. Which is vastly larger than a normal population. So the whole dynamic is that since this gene is within this small population and there's not a lot of immigration, that it just it breeds itself and populates itself with a substantial number of um, people who can't distinguish between colors. One of the phenomena about uh, being colorblind also is that they're very sensitive to light. So he tells a story, Sachs does, about arriving on the island in the daytime and seeing an inordinate number of people looking at him and blinking aggressively and squinting their eyes changes the way they see. Now, the reason I tell that story is because we have a different kind of blindness that James wants us to be challenged about in order that we might do two things, that we might be more dependent on God and more thankful to him when he does provide. Of course, maybe there's someone here who's colorblind, but really, the title of this message isn't colorblindness, it's expectations blindness. And I want to talk about how we expect the world to work for us. What we expect out of a morning, what we expect out of tomorrow, what we expect to be the fruit of our labors. And because we expect the world basically to work for people like us, because we expect to be able to plan and profit and prosper, When those things do happen, we're not thankful. And when they don't, we're depressed. Because we think our lives are pretty much the way life should be for someone who's like us. I mean, think about what you expect out of tomorrow, what you expected out of today. You expected that life should pretty much be this way for someone like you. Or is that just my people who heard this sermon first? I mean, it's everybody It's embedded as a a middle-class value in America. Our expectations blind us to our absolute dependence on God. And that's what this passage is about. So I want to look at that. I want to see how that works in us, how wealth works in us. And then I want to see what James really says about us and then about how we should look at our tomorrows and our needs. So... Let's look back at this passage. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make out our plans and that sort of thing. Now James, if you're familiar with the Bible, and it's okay if you're not, I didn't know anything about it until I was in my 20s. Um, but James is concerned about economic justice and about how people treat the poor. There's a lot to be said. We're not going to talk about that today. James is also concerned about how wealth makes us treat God. And in this passage he's going to say that that the way that we think about ourselves and our environment blinds us again, as I said, to God. Listen to how these people live. They're the two thousand years ago, they live just like us, don't they? Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city. In our case it was like Saturday, I'm driving to Bellingham. We're gonna we're gonna go to Boundary Bay, you know, we're gonna see a movie um, and then we're gonna preach up at Christ Church, Bellingham. It's the way that we live. We think that we can control our calendar, uh, our destinations, and of course it always works out for us. Take a look at this passage again. And then we go there, there, and then what do we make? We make a profit. We make money. Here's the thing. The way that you live and I live has taught us that we have an extreme dominion over our world. You know, money, what does money and wealth do? And I'm sure there are people here who don't have a lot and some who have more. But it allows us to bend time allows us to erase consequences. It allows us to satisfy our own desires. And when we do that over and over again, we start to think that that happens simply because that's the way the world should work. That's the way life should be for people who are like me. J.K. Rowling, who wrote a few books and then they made some movies out of it, who, by the way, doesn't believe in magic. I was in an to interview that, that kind of surprised me. She's like... She believes in making money from magic. I know that. And she's probably made approaching a billion dollars. And she talked about magic and money in an interview I saw with her. And she said that while she doesn't believe in magic, she does know that people think money is magic. And she said now that she has a lot of money, uh, people assume that she can do anything for herself or for them and change fundamentally their life. And she says it's a fantasy the fundamental part of who you are, the things that you have cannot be changed by them. Because fundamentally, all this planning we do, all this experience we have of organizing our lives and being productive and making a day go pretty much most of the time the way we want it, it hides some deep realities from us, and that's what I want to talk about. First of all, it hides the fact that we're just nothing. We're just fundamentally nothing in three different ways first way is that we're fundamentally ignorant about tomorrow. You don't know, James says. Go here, there. You do not even know what will happen in the morning. What our wealth and what the habitual way of living through our lives obscures from us is the fact that none of us know what will happen to the things that we love, the people that we love, or even our own life this afternoon. Now, that's, the problem with that is that's often not true. What do I mean by that? Well, often you do know what's going to happen this afternoon. I mean, we have plans this afternoon, unless they've changed, right? So we have plans this afternoon. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to be eating with my friends this afternoon. But fundamentally, there are days when you realize that you don't know what's going to happen In the afternoon or in the morning, there's illness, there's accidents, there's natural catastrophes. Do any of us, can we even calculate how many independent human wills need to behave predictably for us to get up and go to work tomorrow? It's completely out of our realm, and the problem is, out of God's kindness, out of his generosity... And out of the the embedded regularity of the way he made the world, it's all obscured to us. And so things happen every day and we start to get blind to God working in our lives, to God giving us a morning, to God giving us friends, to God giving us a meal. Because our expectations of life have been um, defined by our middle class values. But, you know, there is a day, there's ultimately a day when it's absolutely true that you don't know what happens tomorrow. I mean, there is that day. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Luke about a guy who was basically doing what James says. He's like building up, and his farm's doing really well, and he's making all kinds of money and, uh, or grain. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's like, what am I going to do? He's sitting back there, I don't, know how to do, I don't know how to deal with all this wealth problem that I'm sure we're all struggling with today. It's like, I just had so much money. I just don't know, where to, I know what I'll do. I'll build some more barns. I'll put my stuff in the barns. And then I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and, um, you know, I'll go on Shark Tank in the first century, and I'll give money away to other businesses or something. But then Jesus says to him, if you know the rest of the story, you fool tonight, your very life's going to be demanded from you. You know, you really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You're absolutely dependent on another's providence. And if you're exploring Christianity, if you're looking into the faith... um, what we're going to find out is, is if God is good, and that's the message of the Bible, it's good to be that dependent. It's actually safe. God's trying to help you understand how dependent you are on him so he can show you how good he is to you. Not so he can scare you, but so he can bless you. A friend of mine was um, a uh, missionary in um, the tropical islands in Grenada, and I was going to go speak for a week at a conference that he was putting up. A guy I went to with. And so I, I, we're going through this whole thing. We're talking about this. was actually before email. That's how old I am. I actually did ministry before there was email. So um, we would use carrier pigeons, and we would talk back and forth, you know. And uh, we were on the phone, actually. And every time we're on the phone, I'd be like, Jim, so are we going to do this? What's the plan? The, is the seminar coming together? Do you know what I'm going to preach? And every single time, every single question about every single event, he would go, well, yeah, Lord willing, which is what this passage is, Lord willing. And I was like, okay, Lord willing. And I'm starting by getting closer to this trip. I'm getting increasingly irritated with how unorganized the guy is. I'm like, I'm like Sandy, can this guy nail something down? I mean, what's up? So finally, about a week before we left, or I left, he said it like one too many times. I'm like, Jim, man, I'm getting concerned is the schedule nailed down or what's going to happen when I'm there? Why do you keep saying Lord willing? And he says from like across the ocean, he's like, well, Micah, I just say Lord willing because that's what James told us to say. Oh, yeah, that, sure. Yeah, right on, amen. And then I hung up and uh, (laughs) felt like a big jerk, you know, and then wrote this sermon right after that. But, you know, he was in an environment where, you know, you live in the third world for a while. You learn to say, Lord willing, don't you? Because you really, things are, can be very tenuous. All the, all the apparatus and all the cultural and economic and organizational momentum that we're just grooved in, it's taken away, and so you never really know what's going to go down. You know, I just was in Africa about a year ago. And when you're in Africa, you, you say, Lord willing, a lot. Because it's just not, just not the way it is here. That's a good thing. And it's hard to tell a group of people for whom your tomorrow most likely will be just like your last Monday. Except that it's so much like that that it's almost rutted. Maybe you want your Monday to be different and it won't be different. But the fact of the matter is is that you really don't know what tomorrow brings. And and you should embrace that ignorance because that ignorance can become the leading edge of you experiencing the presence of God in your life. If you ignore that ignorance, if you just shut your eyes to it, then your days will just happen and happen and happen until they don't happen. But part of faith, if you're exploring uh, Christianity, is to understand that the moments beyond the now belong to God. And He hands them to us like we hand things to our children. Which means He's actively involved in your life. Now think about that. I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end. But I pastor a lot of people who wonder where God is in their life. These are Christians and certainly people that are exploring Christianity. Now let's apply what James has just said about saying, Lord willing. You know, these are people that have eaten every day that most of them, although we have some homeless folks in our church, have a place to sleep. They have friends. Um, more of them don't have work than used to, but they have jobs. And And... They miss all that. They miss God in their life, right? Because that's not God in their life. That's just the way life should be for somebody like them. But if you realize that you don't know what tomorrow brings, when you wake up tomorrow and it looks relatively normal, like you can get some work done, you can have some time with your family, your friends, or your roommates, well, then your eyes can be opened to the fact that not only are you dependent on God, but you can be thankful to who he is. Because there's something else that we want to realize about why we can't speak so casually in the ways that verse 13 warns us about. Not only are we ignorant, but we're transient. We're tiny little things. This passage says that we are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. That word is uh, steam that comes up from boiling water. That's what it means. That's that's what you are. Uh, Aren't you glad you came to hear that? But... uh, but we don't feel that way, do we? We feel significant. We're a force to be reckoned with, or we should be, right? We shouldn't be slighted. We should be able to get what we want. We're important people. But God says that we're just here for a little while. A little while, then, it's gone. In a little while, it vanishes. That word little is, is oligon. There you learned some Greek today. Just imagine it as the opposite of Google. Okay, Google is vast, jimongous number, you know? So um, you're the opposite of that. You're, the, the span of time you have on Earth is the opposite of Google. So if Google is all the vast, valuable, and every little bit of it true data on the Internet, okay, then, then you and I are Post-it notes. That's all we are. In the vast course of humanity... In in the eyes of God's eternity, our 70 or 80 years, no matter how successful we might think they are or want them to be, they're gone in a moment. They're just vanished. They're away. The Bible says that we are are, uh, burned up like grass, that we fade like flowers that bloom in the morning and then retract in the evening. That's what the Bible says about us. And, of course, it's not our experience of ourselves, is it? But we're just gone. We're gone in a moment. Now, let's talk again about how that can change the way that we experience God. When we realize that we're just momentary, we can start to understand how kind and condescending in a good way and loving God has been to pay attention to us. We we understand that in a moment when we're in conflict or in a moment when we're finding victory, we really have been given... uh, Uh, opportunity to trust in the greatness of God and the smallness of ourselves. You know, put it this way. If you're one in a million, okay? Let's say that you are literally one in a million. You are so gifted, so compelling, so beautiful, so smart that you are one in a million. There are almost 7,000 people just like you on the planet. Let's say you build a pyramid. Do you know it's not really clear what the pyramids were for or exactly who built them? Now think about that. I have ridden a camel around a pyramid. There's a lot of debate over who and what. So you could build a pyramid, okay? You could build a pyramid, and eventually no one would know who you were. That's a bummer. Think about this. That's a real bummer. They're big things but you're just a mist. A mist, by the way, that God sent his son for that he loves and cherishes and understands has an eternal reality connected to it. We're ignorant. We're tiny, itty-bitty little things. And then finally, what's really at the heart of this passage is that in spite of our ignorance and our transience, our, our momentary life and how limited our perspective is, We're arrogant creatures. Now, James says something here that um, really, if a preacher says, people think he had a bad week. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, hear this, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Now, that seems a little intense, doesn't it? I mean, really, what James describes up above is just planning your week. Who uses Outlook? Who who uses Google Calendar? You can't really do your job. You can't raise your family unless you engage in the kind of things that he warns you about in verse 13. And yet James says, boom, you're, you're arrogant and you're boastful. Says at least to those people. So what's behind that? Well, as I said, if that wasn't in the Bible and I just made that as an application, like, how would that go over? If that verse isn't there, but I said, the thing I, I think you really got to deal with is your arrogant people and your boastful people. And Nate called me to, said, would you come and tell these people that they're arrogant and boastful? Well, the Bible does that often because it sees us with a very clear and kind perspective about what's embedded deep underneath in who we are. Because here's the reality. Um, We don't come across as arrogant or boastful when we plan, but if our planning is done completely independent of prayer, completely independent of God, with a complete uh, uh, unthoughtful expectation that the universe is going to wake up and the God of the universe is going to wake up and meet our needs in a morning just because it's the way life should be for someone like me, If that's the way we live our life, we live in God's house, we eat His stuff, we play with His toys, and we never think of Him. Well then, if you start to think of it that way, how casual we are about all the goodness God has thrown upon us day after day after day, well then you can start to see that it is kind of arrogant, isn't it? It is sort of arrogant to expect life to go well for us every single day. And then when it does go well for most days, and I imagine in a group like this, there's people that are maybe in really acute need and hurting. I understand that. But for most of us, life's going pretty much the way we need it to. We're not stunned by that. We're not thankful for that as we should be. And uh, speaking personally, I'm I'm not as happy about that as I should be. I mean, think about it. Think about all the things God has given you or me. And it just doesn't stun me. I want more. You know, Rockefeller was asked, a rich guy, about 100 years ago, how much money does a man need to be happy? Does anybody know what his answer was? It's a little bit more. And so it's not just about money. It's like how much progress do I need to make to be happy? How how many days in a row do I have to be able to feed my family before I really think God showed up in my life? Well, just one more, because if God stops doing that in my life for a day, all of a sudden I wonder if he's good. See, so there is kind of a, there is a, a pride deeply um, embedded in who we are. In the Old Testament, the people of God were um, out of Egypt you know, the Exodus, the Disney movie, the whole thing that came from the Bible. So um, they uh, and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert, and then they're on the, the edge of the promised land, and they're going to go take the promised land that God gave them. And it's going to be a great place for them. It's going to be like the biblical vision of, of middle class, like flowing with milk and honey. And, you know, there's going to be the central mall of Jerusalem and all that stuff. And it's just going to be everything everybody wanted it to be. And so um, God knows that, so this is what He says to the people of God right when they're on the edge. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that He may confirm His covenant that He swore with your fathers. See, it's God's faithfulness. It's God's kindness that made last Wednesday like the 30 Wednesdays before for you. It's God's kindness and his attentiveness to people who don't understand what's really coming to them and are only really around for a moment. It's God's kindness. So you can start to see James, um, who can sometimes, if you haven't read James, you need to know that he can be pretty full on, blunt. But it's always a benevolent confrontation that he wants to provide for us. Because what... What James wants to do with his people, with the middle class of his age, you see, and the mer- merchant class of his community, he wants not to make us feel bad about planning. We're going to look at that in a moment. But he, he wants all of us to understand how dependent we are on God so that we can see how kind he's been to us by taking away our expectations blindness. Listen to what he says. Instead, there's a great phrase in this passage, Instead, you ought to say, in verse 15. Now, notice that he doesn't say, instead, you ought to never plan. He doesn't even really say, instead, you ought to never expect anything. And he certainly doesn't say, instead, you ought to not try to make money, or make a profit, or make your business work, or make your family more more secure. He doesn't say any of that. He says, instead, you ought to say, Lord willing if it is God's will. That's all that there is to it. That's my little brain ninja for you. If I could just pop it in your head right now. Spend this week saying, Lord willing. A little tiny, in in Greek it's two words as well, little phrase. A little prayer that means everything, that changes everything, that opens your eyes to all the good things God has done to you and for you and around you with your family and your roommates and whoever. Just Lord willing. A little prayer that acknowledges how ignorant you are about your future, how passing your life is, and is a guard against the arrogance of expectation that blinds you to all these good things God is doing for you. You see, it's very, very simple. Sometimes the most profound spiritual exercises um, in the Christian walk are just as simple as this one right here. James hasn't taken all that away. He hasn't said that it's ungodly to think in terms of the future, to plan or to hope, to prosper. He says that deeply embedded in you is um, independence that will blind you to God. An expectation's blindness. He's not against drive. He's against drive divorced from dependence on God. And that's exactly what he wants from all of us. A friend of mine's, um, friend of mine's father, when um, we were young, had quite an insurance business that he had built up over the years. And when I was in early, or I was in—I would say early college, which tells you how long it took me to go through college. Okay, so when I was in early college, college phase one, he, um, he sold his business, and I asked him. I said, "Wow, that surprised me." He was in his, in his mid-fifties or early mid-fifties, and he said, "He said, well, um, I just had an opportunity to find financial security for me and my children. He had, uh, five kids for me and my children." For life and I couldn't pass it up, and I thought, well, that's what I want to do when I'm 55. <laughs> like, note to self, build business, sell it for millions, you know. And um, so, that was that. Till about five years later, when he called my buddy, his son, and in a similar setting, um, industry, said, Hey, uh, I need to go to work again. And his son said, Why? and he said, I just sold my Jaguar to make my house payment. Five years. Two generations of wealth was gone in five years. You know, you don't really know what tomorrow brings, do you? You don't really know. If you don't know what tomorrow brings, you don't really know what you need, do we? We don't really know how good God has been to us. So I want to think with you a little bit about where God has been in your life. And maybe we can look together and find out that God has actually been actively involved in, in our lives every single day. But we've just missed it. So do you feel that way sometimes? Maybe you're a Christian, you've been a, a, a large part of your life. And you just wonder, is he answering my prayers? Does prayer make a difference? Does he, is he really involved in my life? Well, think about all the days that have gone just like you thought they would. Think about all of the goodness. Try to catalog for one week, as Trevor mentioned from James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from God above. Try to catalog for one week every good thing that is in your life. And at the end of that week, take that out and ask yourself again if you can say, Where's God? Because the fact of the matter is, God is in our lives all the time. But we don't see it because we think our lives are just the way they ought to be for people like us. But with every meal, with every friendship, with every comfort, with every joke that we laugh at, with every every ale we share with a buddy, it's, it's God giving us those things. He's there. It's like I'm here today. Think about today. Remember what Jesus said to pray for our daily bread? So I'm trying to help us to see and to open our eyes. You know, you've been given many, many good things. And I, I know, just because I know groups of people, that there's folks here, if we could talk afterwards, you would talk about some really acute, significant thing in your life that... Um, is, is broken or deeply painful. And I'm not trying to minimize that at all. You know, that's another passage, another part of the God's promise. But I, I do think that there would be comfort for us, even in those situations, if if we weren't blinded to all the goodness that is around us. It might give us confidence and comfort. You know, I went to Africa a year ago, I mentioned, and I was going to go alone. I'd been there before. I was going to go alone on this trip. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine decided that he wanted to go with me just because he didn't want me to go alone. So he carved out vacation time and spent his own money. it takes a lot to get to Malawi. And he came with me. So where's God in my life, you know? Well, God in my life looks like this guy that went to Africa with me. You see? He looks like somebody who cared for me. Like, where's God in your life? Open your eyes. He's all around you. He's the person that calls you up or sends you a text and asks how you're doing. He's entering into your life. That's all I've really got to tell you. I want you to realize how the patterns of our lives and the expectations that we have have blinded us to all the good things that he's done. I'm asking you um, to embrace how little you know and how short your life is and how that means you're absolutely dependent on God every morning. And how many times he's delivered. And in order to um, to break through that embedded, what I would call soft arrogance in us, because it's not an unpleasant arrogance, but it's still arrogant, I, I just want to import into your vocabulary, like my friend, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. Let me tell you the rest of the story about my friend's dad. Always a nice guy. I, I'm, he was always a, a Christian man as far as, as far as I could ever tell. Um, even his whole life before that. But that moment when he sold his Jaguar and then the three, four years after that was absolutely transformative in his life when the veil was taken down, as as Jesus says, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, when that was gone, and he learned dependence, real dependence and deep thankfulness, this very kind, very generous, very effective guy learned to be very dependent on God. And it it made a godly man out of him. It It made a compelling, godly man out of him. And it's on that edge of dependence where that happens in your life. But as long as you're blind, that'll never be part of the way you walk with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. I ask you please to um, help us to be dependent upon you, me especially. Help us to see your goodness and then make it count in our hard hearts. Stun us with how many good things you've given us. Stun us with how attentive to you are to people who don't understand the future, don't understand the present, and know that they only last a moment. Lord Jesus, we pray these things for Your name's sake. Amen.